Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. God is good, amen. Why do you believe this book? By the way, it's a Bible I'm holding, just in case. Why do you trust what's contained within the pages of this book? What reasons do you have for getting yourself up bright and early and out of the house on Sunday mornings to come hear one of us teach from this book? Or if a colleague asked you this week, why do you believe the words of the Bible? How would you respond? See, now, possibly more than ever, the Bible is on the receiving end of so many accusations, so many objections, uh, so many jokes. You know, the Bible's just filled with contradictions and, and discrepancies, you'll hear people say, until you ask them, okay, show me one. Oh, I don't know, that's what I heard. The Bible's just filled... Uh, with a bunch of fairy tales, they're, they're kids' stories, or the Bible was written by primitive people. It has no place in our modern world. Or the Bible can't be the word of God, because it's just a collection of these ancient fiction stories. See, these kinds of objections aren't unusual, so what are we to make of them? How, how do we respond to these kinds of objections? Well, for one, we do have very good reasons to believe that the Bible is the word of God, right? There are plenty of evidences, plenty of proofs that lend credence to our trust in the scriptures. For example, the unity of the Bible speaks to its divine origin. The fact that the Bible is so unified, the fact that 66 books of the Bible, written by 40 different authors from different backgrounds, and spoke different languages from different content, uh, continents, wrote it over the span of about 1,600 years. So the fact that all of that took place the fact that these 66 books weave together this beautiful unfolding story of redemption lends credence to its divine origin. Or take the historical and geographical accuracy of the scripture. Another proof that God is behind the text, right? It's become the single most accurate historical document used by archaeologists over and over and over again throughout the centuries. The Bible has been proven accurate in its people, accurate in all the locations, accurate in the dates, accurate in the rulers, accurate in all the records of historical events. So you have the unity of Scripture, you have the geographical and historical accuracy of Scripture, and the list of reasons goes on and on. The fact that the Bible was preserved the way it was for that many years, or the fact that the Bible is so honest, it's clear that it's true, or the fact that the Bible speaks of so many miracles, or ultimately, it's because Jesus recognized the authority 
of Scripture. See, there are so many reasons to believe the Bible can be trusted, but arguably one of the most convincing reasons, one of the greatest evidences that God is the author of the Bible is found in the fact of predictive prophecy. Predictive prophecy. See, Scripture contains about 2,000 predictions about future events. Right? And the ones that have already been fulfilled have been fulfilled so precisely, so accurately. Fulfilled prophecy, then, is not the result of, of chance or, or coincidence. Fulfilled prophecy is the result of an eternal, timeless, omniscient God ensuring his people that he could be trusted and giving us incredible evidence for believing in him and, and taking the scripture to be his word, believing beyond the shadow of a doubt that this is the inerrant, authoritative word of God. Some of you might know the name J. Vernon McGee, old-time radio host through the Bible. I love what he said. Listen to this quote from him. He said, if I were asked today whether I had just one thing to suggest as a conclusive proof that the Bible is the word of God, do you know what I suggest? I would suggest fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy is the one proof that you can't escape, you can't get around. And the Bible is full of fulfilled prophecy. One-fourth of Scripture, when it was written, was prophetic. And that is that it announced things that were to take place in the future. A great deal of that, in fact, a great deal more than people imagine, has already been fulfilled. We could turn to many places where prophecy has been fulfilled exactly. And one such place we could turn to is Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11 is where we find ourselves this morning. Now, Daniel 11 is part of Daniel's fourth vision. Remember, Daniel had uh, four visions, and this is uh, right in the middle of his fourth vision. The vision began in chapter 10. Um, the contents, the angel gives Daniel the contents um, of what's going to happen in chapter 11. And then chapter 12 um, is the last part of that fourth vision. Now, what's astonishing, though, about chapter 11 is the sheer amount of predictive prophecy that was written hundreds of years before the events themselves even transpired. And Daniel records with such precision and such accuracy a description of historical events that followed his own time. All of the prophecies that we're going to read about were future to Daniel, because Daniel wrote these down around 530 B.C., now, we have a lot of ground to cover in a short amount of time, so we're going to highlight some major parts, um, and then we're going to draw out some uh, timeless truths from Daniel uh, chapter 11. Um, and unlike the, the symbolism and uh, numerology that we've seen in a lot of the visions uh, to date, what's unique about this one, the contents of this vision, is that chapter 11 uh, gives a very straightforward, uh, literal reference to the events that are going to happen to the kings and, and the kingdoms that he's going to write about. So right out of the gate, the first thing that Daniel chapter 11 teaches us is that scripture is reliable. Scripture is reliable. It can be trusted as the word of God. The Bible is the word of God, and it can be trusted as the ultimate source of truth and wisdom. And we'll talk a little bit more about this in a little bit. So picking up in Daniel chapter 11, verse 2. Verse 2. This is the angel speaking to Daniel, continuing what he started telling him in, from chapter 10. He says, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he's become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. So the prophecies in verse 2 refer 
to Persia. They're all about Persia. Daniel's writing around, again, 530 BC. He writes about four kings yet to come to Persia. And the fourth is going to be richer and so much stronger than all the others. And we, we learned that in 486 BC, um, 50 or so years after Daniel predicted this, Xerxes gathered two and a half million men and he invaded Greece, just as prophesied. Then in verses three and four, the prophecies no longer uh, concern themselves with Persia, but now they go to the kingdom of Greece. Look at verse three. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. Now the mighty king who arose was none other than Alexander the Great. In 336 BC, he conquered the Persian Empire at the time and ruled most of the known world. Verse four. And as soon as he has arisen... His kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So if you, if you know anything about Alexander the Great, his life was cut short um, by death. He, he died early, and when he died, no one in his family inherited the throne. So his kingdom was divided to four of his generals, the four winds of heaven. And then starting in verse 5, what happens is the angel now focuses on two of these four divisions, two of these four kingdoms, Egypt, which is to the southwest of Israel down here, and then you have Syria, which is to the northeast of Israel. So Egypt. I did this the first service they were laughing, so I'll just do it again. Egypt down here. Syria up here. That means this is Israel, all right? You got it? So now when you see this, you'll never forget. Egypt, Syria, Israel, okay? So Egypt and Syria become the focus from verses 5 all the way to 35 because they predict what's going to happen to these two kingdoms, especially as they relate to Israel. Now, these predictions in verse 5, they start uh, to become fulfilled around 323 BC. And by the time you get to the end of verse 35, you find yourself around 164 BC. Now, the predictions in these first 35 verses of chapter 11 are, are so detailed and so numerous um, that we don't have, we're not going to go through all of them. We're just going to highlight a couple of them. In fact, there's about 135 prophecies um, contained in those first 35 verses, about 135 prophecies, and all 135 of them have been fulfilled with such amazing precision. Now, we're, like I said, we're not going to look at every one of them, but let's look at this one in verse 5. The angel says this, Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. So now you start to get into all the language that is used throughout the rest of the chapter. You see this, these references to king of the south and king of the north. King of the south, king of the north. Time and time again, you're reading all of this. So they're simply used to refer to whoever was leading, whoever was leading the kingdom at that time. So the kingdom of the south, whoever was leading Egypt, or the king of the north, whoever was leading Assyria at that time. Now, after um, Alexander died, he, one of his capable generals um, was named, uh, well, he went by the name Ptolemy I. He took control of Egypt to the south, and that was around 305 BC. At the same time, one of the lesser generals, uh, Seleucus I, took control of Syria to the north. Okay, but the, the king of the south, who was Ptolemy, he was strong and, and he was influential, and then Seleucus to the north ran into some problems, so he 
went back down to go to Egypt, to the south, and he put himself um, as one of the princes under the command of the king of the south. Now, after some time there, Seleucus eventually went back to Syria. He um, grew his kingdom, he grew his, his military, um, and his, uh, his kingdom became even bing- bigger and more prosperous than the kingdom to the south. And that led to years of conflict between Syria and Egypt, with Israel always stuck right in the middle. After some years, though, they make an alliance, just as prophesied. Look at verse 6. After some years, they shall make an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. So just as it was predicted over a hundred years before any of these events took place, the daughter of the king of the south, her name was Bernice, she went to the king of the north, at that time was uh, Antiochus II, she went to the king of the north to, uh, to marry him and to form an alliance. It sounds like a good plan. There's one problem, though. The king of the north, Antiochus, is already married. He's married to a woman named Laodice. So he thinks it's a good idea, though, good for the kingdom, good to stop uh, all the, the, the war. So he divorces Laodice, and he marries Bernice. They have a son together. But what ends up happening is, I guess, uh, Antiochus II got pretty bored with Bernice. So he divorces Bernice and then goes back to Laodice and marries, remarries his first wife. Now, he must have forgotten that Laodice must have been some kind of Sicilian or something like that because she goes nuts at this point. <laughs> I'm married to a Sicilian. She's not here, but she's watching online. Hi. <laughs> but she does. She goes nuts. She poisons him. She murders him. Um, she arranges to have uh, Bernice killed, their son killed, all her servants, everybody who supported her, just as it was prophesied. It's pretty amazing. So then what happens is verses 7 to 9 then go on to predict what happens after Bernice's death. Verse 7 says, and from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. So Bernice's brother, Ptolemy III, at this point, he becomes ruler of the south. So he invades Syria to the north because he wants retaliation, right? Laodice killed uh, his sister. So he goes to the north, he invades uh, Syria, he executes Laodice, and he takes a bunch of loot back to Egypt. Then you get to the next chunk of verses, verses 10 through 20. Now verses 10 through 20 form the next period of time because these verses highlight um, the many exploits and, and victories um, of uh, Antiochus III um, and his struggles with all the different kings of Egypt down here. And there's this back and forth that you see with power shifting from king of the south to king of the north, king of the south, king of the north, back, back and forth and back and forth. All the while, who's stuck in the middle? Israel. Israel is stuck in the middle. So they're the ones that are really suffering. The battles are taking place on their turf, right? And they're experiencing pressure and suffering and persecution from all sides. Then you get to verses 21 to 35. And that's where you see the pressure on the Jews and the persecution begin to to increase. So these verses prophesy the rise of that contemptible ruler we know as Antiochus uh, IV, also known as Antiochus Epiphanes. 
Um, he reigned from 175, starting at 175 BC for about 11 years. And again, this is all written like 200 years before any of this even happened. So these verses then between uh, 20 and 35 all elaborate on, on some of these battles and stuff and, and the gross persecution of the Jews. Let's look at verse 21. He says, In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. So this vile or contemptible person, like I said, is Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. He, his rise to the throne was illegitimate because people were accusing him of murdering his older brother, the former king. He gained power, though, by using flattery and by making smooth promises. And he gained the support of the people by bribing them. He was known to do what a lot of other rulers never did. He would, he would go into a new territory, basically steal, get all, get all the loot, and he would look at all the people around and say, take it, it's yours, I don't want it. So he gained a lot of favor with people bribing them. Then you get to verses 25 to 28, and they predict Antiochus's first invasion of Egypt. In 170 BC, Antiochus invaded Egypt, and he won that first time. Both kings then uh, sat together. We know from history both kings sat together, and they tried forging a peace treaty uh, to no avail, um, which again was already established by prophecy. Look at verse 27. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the appointed time. Then verse 29 predicts uh, Antiochus's second invasion of Egypt, which happened in 168 BC. Verse 29, at the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. So this time things are going to be different for Antiochus, because this time Egypt forms an alliance with one of the rising world superpowers, Rome. Egypt forms an alliance with Rome, and Rome forces Antiochus to stop, to stop battling in, in Egypt. And then you get to verses 31 to 35, and they foretell of Antiochus's persecution of the Jews. See, here's what happened. When Rome ordered Antiochus to cease and desist, um, a Roman navy commander um, confronted Antiochus. Uh, they were standing in the sand. He took a stick and he drew a circle around Antiochus. And he said to Antiochus, this Roman uh, Navy commander, said, I need to, you need to make a decision if you're going to attack Egypt. And you need to make your decision before you step out of that circle. So naturally, he, he said he wasn't going to attack Egypt. So he was utterly humiliated, completely embarrassed, so frustrated and so angry. He felt pretty small at that point right? because he was a rising power. So he turns back to Syria to head home. Now, if he's in Egypt and he's humiliated down in Egypt and angry and frustrated and he's heading back home to Syria, where does he have to pass through? Israel. He's got to pass through Israel. So what happens is Antiochus stores up all of this anger, all of this frustration, and he vents it all against the Jews. Look at verse 31. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So what ends up happening is Antiochus stops 
the daily sacrifices. He, br- he brings an end to that system. He desecrates the temple by putting up a statue of the Greek god Zeus. He sacrifices a pig on the altar. And then he gets the priest's chambers and he changes all the priest's chambers into brothels. And then it was during that time when the, the Maccabean revolt happened. Um, right around that time, if you remember that, that's uh, the, the origins of the Festival of Lights or, or Hanukkah. Though some uh, were brave and though some resisted Antiochus, um, nevertheless, thousands and thousands died. And this was such an awful time for the faithful Jews in Israel. There was so much suffering, so much pain, so much sorrow, so much persecution. Now, as difficult and as tragic as all this persecution was, it was purposeful. See, because if Daniel 11 has taught us so far that first scripture is reliable, here's the second thing we learned from Daniel 11, and that's that suffering is purposeful. Scripture is reliable, and suffering is purposeful. God always uses suffering for the good of his children. It doesn't feel good at the time. It doesn't usually look good. It never really makes sense, but it's purposeful because God purifies us in the heat of suffering. We know this is true from the New Testament, but this is something the angel even points out to Daniel. He said that during the revolt against Antiochus that many are going to stumble, but God is going to bring out his good purposes for it. Look at verse 35. And some of the wise shall stumble. Why? So that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So the angel is reminding Daniel that God uses suffering to shape his children. Right, The way a silversmith a silversmith would uh, use, uh, would heat metal. So he, uh, silver, for example, he would have this, this vat of metal. He'd heat the metal, put the, uh, the silver underneath or right over top of a big source of heat, big flames. It gets so, so hot and as, the, as the temperature increased. All the impurities in the silver would come to the top. So the silversmith would wipe away those impurities. Then he'd repeat that process all over again. He'd reheat it, and all the impurities would rise to the top. And then he'd wipe away those impurities. You know how he knew when the silver was good to go? When he saw his reflection in the metal. Much like our suffering, it's purposeful. God uses it to mold us into the image of Christ. See, for Israel... It says here the refining process is going to continue until the time of the end. And what is the time of the end? Well, the angel says the end will come when God determines it. It's his appointed time. Now, this was a word of comfort, believe it or not, because it makes clear to the Jews during this time that not only was their suffering purposeful, but it was limited. It was limited. They were not going to be harmed beyond what God was going to allow. Suffering and persecution are not going to continue any longer than God permits. He's determined by his sovereignty when the end will come, when Christ the Messiah will return. So then what happens is all of this talk of last days up to this point leads then the angel to essentially leap over thousands and thousands of years of history from Antiochus Epiphanes in our past all the way now to the Antichrist of our future. So everything that we've read thus far was future to Daniel, but past to us. Now we're going to start looking at things that were future to Daniel and are future to us. 
And this is what happens then, in starting in verse 36. Because, uh, again, the angel's not talking about things that took place already. He's talking about things that will take place in the time of the end. Um, this is Daniel's 70th week, um, based off of our Daniel 9 study. So this is what it says, 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He's talking about a different king. Antiochus is already gone. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. See, the suffering of the Jews uh, under Antiochus was a, a foreshadowing of the suffering that was going to happen in the future. Someone who's going to subject God's people to even greater persecution. See, in his revelation to Daniel, the angel gives us a few clues about the character and, and career of this person, as well as his ultimate demise. So verse 36 tells us this person's going to act in self-love and self-will. He's going to exalt himself, right? As opposed to Jesus, who emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, this Antichrist figure is going to magnify himself and assert his supremacy above all others, even blaspheming God. Verse 37, he shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. So the Antichrist is going to be a, a, an irreligious person. He's going to disregard whatever uh, religious affiliation his, uh, his, his, was in his uh, background and his heritage, and he's going to reject any and all deities. He'll be a, 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 an atheist or maybe even an anti-theist. Verse 38, he shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. In, in essence, the only thing that this uh, figure is going to worship is himself and the God of war. War. He's going to place tremendous confidence in his military might. Verse 39, he shall deal with the strongest forces with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. So whoever acknowledges this man as king of kings are going to receive some benefits in return. His loyalty to, um, to the, the god of war combined with his political favors is going to lead him to gain popularity and power and rapidly gain control of the world. And then you get to verses 40 to 45, and what those verses do is they summarize the final struggle that's going to take place between this uh, Antichrist figure, who's uh, seen in these passages as the revived king of the north, and the people who will seek to protect God's people. He's going to be victorious at first, and he's going to set up shop uh, in Israel. That's what you see in some of these verses. It's going to seem like nothing could stop him. He's going to conquer major world powers. He's going to strip away so much of the wealth of the world. But just as quickly as the Antichrist achieved power, so quickly is he also going to come to his end. Because in his last desperate assault upon Israel and upon all of God's people, he's going to destroy many of them. He will. But just when it seems like he's going to completely annihilate them, is what we read in verse 45. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet, he shall come to his end with none to help him. Even quicker than this man rises to power, this end times ruler is going to come to a sudden end. He'll come to his end. Suddenly, unexpectedly and certainly he's not going to receive help 
from anyone because judgment day has arrived. Just as God gave the vision to Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, saying that at the end of time, the heavenly court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and totally destroyed. And then the apostle Paul echoes this thought in the New Testament when he refers to the Antichrist as the man of lawlessness. This is what he writes in 2 Thessalonians 2. He says, then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will destroy with the breath of his mouth, annihilating him by the manifestation of his coming. This one who's going to wreak so much havoc and cause so much suffering is going to crumble when Jesus does. That's all it takes for our king. So, in this then, we learn a third thing from Daniel chapter 11, and that's simply this. Success is undeniable. Scripture is reliable, suffering is purposeful, and success is undeniable. For the child of God, our future success is guaranteed. It's guaranteed because Jesus wins. Jesus has already secured this victory. Yeah, you can clap for that. Jesus has already secured this victory with his death and resurrection, but he's going to one day bring about the full implications of that victory, and he's going to bring an end to all rebellion. He's going to bring an end to all wickedness. He's going to bring an end to all sin, to all death, to all unrighteousness, all godlessness, even when it feels like we're losing, even when we feel like the nation of Israel being pressured and persecuted and attacked from every single direction and under so much pressure, God's word to us this morning reminds us that he guarantees success. God proved himself to be trustworthy, trustworthy in bringing about the perfect fulfillment of 135 prophecies in Daniel 11. So, God can be trusted to bring about the promises that are still yet to be fulfilled. Our future success doesn't depend on us, ultimately. It depends on him. So it's undeniable. And then we turn to the first few verses of Daniel chapter 12, where the angel gives us a bit more detail about what happens at the end. Verse 1, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, And there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book of life. So the angel's saying here that at the time of the end, it's going to... It's going to get real. It's going to be serious. It's going to be lots of wars and disasters, but this final time is going to be unprecedented. During these days, Michael, the protector of God's people, he's going to arise up. He's going to sustain God's people. He's going to deliver God's people. And who are the ones that are going to be delivered? Everyone whose name is found written in the book of life. Right? This is the Lamb's book of life that John refers to in the book of Revelation. This book contains the names of all of those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. See, deliverance has already been determined for followers of Christ. Our deliverance is secure. Our deliverance is guaranteed. And in what is the clearest Old Testament reference to the resurrection, verse 2 tells us that even those who died will be delivered. Verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, 
and some to shame and everlasting contempt. When Jesus returns, he's going to resurrect all people. Those who follow Christ will be raised to eternal life. Those who have rejected Christ will be raised to everlasting contempt. They'll spend an eternity apart from God. And with this, then, we draw out another truth from our text. The scripture is reliable, success, uh, success is undeniable, suffering is purposeful, and here's number four. Salvation is eternal. Salvation is eternal. See, Jesus came to offer eternal life and abundant life to all who come to him in faith, for all who trust him for salvation. He's the door to the everlasting life that Daniel has been talking about this whole time. He's the only one. Jesus Christ is the only one who is able to save us. He's the only one able to redeem us. He's the only one who is able to conquer sin and death by his resurrection so he can guarantee for us our future resurrection. Our salvation purchased by Jesus comes freely to us when we receive it and it lasts for all of eternity. Verse three, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So there's even more good news for God's people, right? Not only will we, will we be raised to everlasting life, but we'll be exalted in God's glorious kingdom, shining brightly like stars forever and ever. Now there's a challenge though for us in this verse. See, the challenge from this verse is that we need to be people of action before the resurrection happens, right? We should live out our lives and speak our words and serve with our hands all for the purpose of making Jesus known, turning many to righteousness, as Daniel says here. Those who turn many to righteousness are those who demonstrate their faith and encourage others to faith. Just as Christ promised in the New Testament, he said, at the end of the age, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. See, what all of these verses teach us, really what all of Daniel teaches, is that God is sovereign. God's in control. He knows what he's doing. He controls history to the smallest details. And he, he controls history to the smallest details. You can trust him with your story. Because even when we suffer, God is with us. And if there's anything else that we've learned, for the people of God, things are going to be difficult for a while. Things will be difficult for a while, but the end will be so glorious. For those who aren't followers of Christ... Things may be fun for a while. Things may be really pleasurable. But the end is going to be utter destruction. So if you don't know Christ, I implore you, don't leave this building today without trusting in him as your savior. Come talk to me. Come talk to one of the other pastors. Come uh, go find someone in a blue shirt after service. Do not leave without knowing your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life church. We can trust God with our lives. He's given us everything that we need for life and righteousness. He's empowered us with his spirit, and he's given us a glimpse into things yet to come. So we can take God at his word when he says these, th these things, because scripture is reliable. The Bible is accurate archaeologically, theologically, historically, scientifically, geographically, prophetically. It's perfect. So feed on the word of God. Make it a priority to study scripture yourself and, and with your family. Place yourself underneath the authority of the scripture. Cling to it when trials assault you. Hold fast to it to get to know God more and stand firm 
on the word of God, even when the world mocks it and makes fun of it. Suffering is purposeful. We also saw that. Suffering is hard, it's sad, it's confusing, but suffering has a purpose because oftentimes the deepest things we've learned in life come from our deepest sufferings. And the deepest things we know about God often arise out of the trouble of deep waters and the hottest fires of trial. I love what Malcolm Muggeridge said. He said this, supposing you eliminated suffering, what a dreadful place the world would be because everything that corrects the tendency of man to feel overimportant and overpleased with himself would disappear. He's bad enough now, but he would be absolutely intolerable if he never suffered. See, God uses our suffering to mold us, to, to shape us, to form us into the image and likeness of Jesus. So you're never adrift in chaos, even when it feels like it. If you're a follower of Christ, you are held firmly in the Father's everlasting arms. And we also see that God's success is undeniable, which means so is ours, and the salvation that he gives us is eternal. It will last forever. God can be trusted with the details of history. So trust him with your story. Wherever you're at, trust God with your story. We can trust God with the details of everything about our lives. He knows our end from our beginning. He knows everything about us, and he promises to work it out all, all for his glory and for our good. God knows the future better than we know the past, so trust him. Trust the Lord. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you that we could trust you. We thank you that you are a good, loving, faithful God. That you are a promise-keeping God. Lord, thank you for giving us your word. Lord, thank you, as strange as it may seem, we do thank you for our times of, of suffering. Lord, because if you have allowed it to come our way, there's a purpose behind it. And even though we may not see the purpose immediately, or if ever on this side of eternity. God, we trust you. We trust that you know what you're doing better than we think we could do. Lord, thank you that ultimate victory has already been secured by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And thank you that we share in that ultimate victory as we stand in union with Christ. And thank you for our eternal salvation. Lord, we love you. We're grateful, so grateful for the work that Jesus did on our behalf. And God, so now we lift up one voice, singing praises to Jesus, who is our King of kings and Lord of lords. In Jesus' name we pray.